0: Uh, Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, in your great kindness, you have called us to trust your Son, our Lord Jesus, uh, for life. Uh, We pray now that through your word, uh, you would sustain and grow your life in us. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And help us to understand it and receive its comfort and instruction. And be strengthened in our trust in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, It's good to be healthy, isn't it? Uh, Though often those of us who enjoy good health can forget how good that is. You know, when you're healthy you can enjoy life, be productive, engage easily with others, experience the richness of the world. In fact, as we see at the moment with the coronavirus, maintaining health is a national priority. But just as important as physical health, as healthy relationships, ones that are sound, can be relied on, a life enriching. And it's particularly important for God's people to have a healthy, sound relationship with the true and living God, one that can be relied on, where we can draw near to God for help one that is productive of life enriches life, one where we know we are loved and love. Now for some this idea of a relationship with God might be unimaginable. Unimaginable because you're either uncertain of his existence or how he can be known or because you can't think why he would want to know you or you fear knowing him. But believers in Jesus, claim that through Jesus they do know God. They call him Father, know he knows and cares for them that they have a relationship with him. And in Deuteronomy 26, we see the Lord's provision for his people to have and maintain a healthy relationship with him, the living God, a sound, life-giving, joyous relationship by learning to confess grace, by learning to respond to grace, and by remembering the purpose of God's grace to them. And this is a provision that also helps avoid two attitudes that can poison our relationship with the Lord. Forgetful thanklessness, or thankless forgetfulness, and presumption, where you claim a relationship with God without the reality, the reality of trusting obedience. And if you're not yet a believer, I hope you'll see in these words the goodness of God in the origin of the relationship that the Lord has with his people and the great goal of that relationship. See that by God's initiative and kindness, his grace, a relationship with God is possible even for fearful, perhaps ashamed people, sinful people like us. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first fruit of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. As Moses comes to the end of this, his second speech, he anticipates the time when Israel will have taken possession of the land, the land that they can see across the Jordan. And he gives them a ritual to repeat every year at the time of first fruits that is, at the time of the beginning of the harvest. And the ritual is simple. They have to go to the place the Lord chooses with some of the first of their harvest and they're to present that representative sample of the bounty of the land to the Lord, represented by the high priest, whose acceptance of the gift indicates the Lord's acceptance. And when the gift is presented, they're to make two confessions... And then there to worship, rejoice and include others in that rejoicing. But did you notice that at the heart of this instruction is a consciousness that what they are enjoying in the promised land is God's gift? That reality is repeated six times in verses uh, 1-11. to So when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, verse 1, verse 2, the land that the Lord your God is giving you, verse 3, the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then at the end, verses 9 to 11, he brought us into this place and gave us this land, verse 10, the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, verse 11, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. The Israelite is always to remember that this good life, this bounty they now enjoy and the land that has produced it has been given to them by God, not earned, but coming to them from his kindness, his grace, his free and generous favour to them. And that's reinforced by the liturgy, the two sets of words that the Israelite farmer is to say as he presents his gift. In the first brief confession, the worshipper, verse 3, confesses the Lord's faithfulness. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. He acknowledges that his presence in the land, his ownership of the land, seen in his harvest, says that the Lord has kept his word, fulfilled the promise he made to his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But that is a fulfilment that he shares in individually. I declare, I have come. He shares in as he is part of God's people. In the second confession, the worshipper recounts the history of Israel as his history, verse 5. He's to come and say, A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labour. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. Now the wandering Aramean could have included Abraham, Isaac and Jacob but the focus is actually on Jacob who went down to Egypt during a famine. And in this speech, (laughs) what's emphasised is the contrast, the contrast between then and now. Jacob was homeless, a sojourner, but now the worshipper has belonging, a God-given place, a home, his own home in the land. Jacob was few, but now Israel is a great nation because the Lord used even their time in Egypt to multiply them. Oh, in Egypt... They were oppressed, humiliated and harshly treated but now the worshipper enjoys freedom and prosperity in his own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in his speech he acknowledges that this wonderful change has all come about because of the Lord. Because, verse 7, the Lord heard and saw. Verse 8, the Lord brought them out with great might. Verse 9, the Lord brought them into the land and gave it to them. And he did this not because, as Moses has reminded them, they deserved it. They were more numerous or more righteous or even because they were hard-working. Moses was very direct about this, wasn't he? Verse 7 of chapter 7, not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath you swore to your fathers. And again in chapter 9, don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust out these nations before you, it's because of my righteousness. Look at verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The Lord rescued the Israelites and gave them this good land because of his love. Because he's chosen them in love. He's decided to love them and his grace to his kindness to undeserving people seen in making and keeping the promise to their forefathers. See in this confession the worshipper is confessing grace. Grace to the nation which is also grace to him individually as he is caught up in the nation's story by believing in the Lord. And It is individual, verse 10. I bring the first fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. The believing Israelite confesses that he is individually caught up in the Lord's grace to the people of Israel and that he is individually enjoying the blessing of that grace, that kindness, the blessing of gracious relationship to the Lord. This grace is his not just in history, but now in the present, in relationship with the Lord. Now, think what following this instruction, confessing grace year by year, will do. Firstly, it will counter that dangerous forgetting that Moses warned the Israelites prosperity would bring. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my wealth have gotten me this wealth. Forgetting makes it easy to be self-righteous, my righteousness, and be proudly confident in ourselves, my power. Forgetting makes it easy to think you don't need to be loyal to the Lord and his ways. Forgetting can and did destroy Israel. But confessing grace keeps a healthy relationship with the Lord where you remember what he has done for you. And secondly, confessing grace reminds them and us of who our God is. He is the Lord, the living God who sees and hears. The almighty God, powerful to deliver his people. He knows and acts. The faithful God who keeps his promises, the kind God. And thirdly, confessing grace reminds them of the blessing of being in a relationship with the Lord, the true and living God past blessing in the change that grace has brought to their lives, present blessing in the harvest in the land and the confidence for future blessing grace gives, assuring the believer of the Lord, the Almighty God's continuing kindness and faithfulness. You see, to confess grace is security and hope. And remembering grace, in verse 11, we see is a source of joy. God says those who confess grace are to include others in that joy. The kind and generous God wants his people, those who know his kindness and generosity to them, to be kind and generous to others. Confessing grace, you see, sets the tone of the life of believers together, where all are to be included in God's generous provision for his people. It's good for the health of our relationship to the living God to confess grace. And those who are now God's people by believing in Jesus, you and I, we know an even greater grace, don't we, as we heard in Ephesians 2, a grace that's brought us from death to life, that's shown us rich mercy, all undeserved, that has saved us forever to keep on experiencing God's rich kindness in the ages to come. So what might a health-sustaining confession of grace look like for us? It's a challenge. I tell you, you might like to write your own. It's a very good exercise, but here's mine. might go something like this. Start with the big picture, uh, like Israel's confession. Adam was my father, created in your image and given every good thing in the garden. But he disbelieved and disobeyed your word and sold us all into sin and death. We were oppressed by Satan's lies, cut off from you forever without hope. But you, Lord, saw our desperate need. You heard our grief and saw our pain. And before we could call out to you because we were ignorant of you, you sent your beloved son, Jesus. He has defeated death by his death. He set us free from our slavery to sin. He has cast out the devil and risen from the dead. He has sent out his gospel into the world. And you've opened my eyes to see his glory and believe in him. Before... I was condemned, now I'm forgiven. Before I feared you and your wrath, but now I know peace with you and can call you Father. Before I had no hope, but now I have eternal life and know that nothing will separate me from your love. And I rejoice to offer my life to you to do your will, the life you have given me through your Spirit. Now I'm sure you could write a better one. But this, and so much more, is true of every believer in Jesus and true of each believer. And so this, or the one, it's a confession we can all make of past change and present blessing as we call upon God as our Father, draw near to him for mercy and help. Now, when might believers in Jesus make this confession or something like it? Well, it's actually something we can confess every day, isn't it, when we wake up, and that would be good for us. We find it easy to forget and to lose perspective. Confessing grace will save us from grumbling complaint, from wandering off elsewhere to give our loyalty to others. It'll save us from being consumed with disappointment, that God in his sovereign wisdom and love has not given us what we are asking him. It'll save us from that disappointment, by remembering that he has already given us so much more. And confessing grace will give us confidence in our God for our future, whether that's the unknown day that lies ahead or the eternity beyond our death. So we should confess grace daily and we should confess grace when we gather for it's good for us to know what we have in common and it's not being good or intelligent or... It's God's kindness to sinners. We should confess and rejoice together so that all believers, those grieving, those afflicted, those discouraged, can share in the grace the Lord has bestowed on us all, share in the common joy of being secure in his grace even as their own hearts are grieved or numbed or exhausted. It's good for us to confess grace. But the Lord through Moses does not just make provision for the relationship sustaining confession of grace. He also gives the Israelites a ritual at another time of the year to remind them that what the proper response to his grace is... When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say, Before the Lord your God. This liturgy was to be recited every third year when the Israelites had put aside the tent of their produce in their towns for those who had no land to produce food for themselves, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Then, having put that aside, they were to go up to the place the Lord had chosen and make this confession, probably as part of the great harvest festival, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This, the giving of this tithe was an opportunity, in a sense, to do a kind of audit of their commitment to the covenant, the relationship God had established with them. And they were to say, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten at the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they were to confess, verse 13, that they had done God's will. And then in verse 14 they confess that they've done God's will God's way. And notice that the Lord has chosen to make their providing for the poor representative of their obedience to the whole covenant. I've not transgressed any of your commands, nor have I forgotten them. You see, this representative obedience was obedience that has no personal benefit, only cost. Yet it's obedience which reflects the generous character of their God who provides for the poor and the widow. It is the obedience of faith. And their manner of doing the tithe, verse 14, of making this provision was a sign of their commitment to conform their lives to the holiness of God and to worship him alone. A mourner was richly unclean through contact with a corpse. And there were many other ways of becoming unclean, yet the tithe for the poor, we see, was sacred. That is, it was a holy thing. And so the unclean could not come in contact with it. An offering to the dead is speaking of participating in pagan rituals, worship of the Canaanite god Baal, who was a dying and rising fertility god. See, the response God looks for to his grace is his people conforming their life to the requirements of the covenant. That is, the requirements of the relationship the Lord has established with them by saving them, conforming their lives to his character, Revealed in his dealings with them and in his law. Their lives were to show that he was the holy and generous God who sought to bless the poor and the marginal through the blessing of his people. And in the context of their response to grace, the response of wholehearted conformity to the costly requirements of the covenant. They seek the continuation of the Lord's grace to them. Verse 15, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground you have given us as you swore to our fathers. They acknowledge their dependence on the Lord, the transcendent God of heaven, even though he's made his name to dwell among them. And their appeal for continued blessing, notice, is not based on the obedience they have just confessed. They speak of themselves as your people and of the land as the ground you have given us. Both are actually the outcome of the Lord's grace to them as he kept the promises that he swore to their fathers. So their appeal for continued blessing is based on their experience of the Lord's grace and faithfulness. Now this confession tells us that the blessings of ongoing relationship are experienced as you live in that relationship. Joining the prayer for continuing faithfulness to the confession of obedience counters the presumption of those who think that they can enjoy the blessing of God while living in defiance of God. His blessing is experienced through and in the covenant, through and in the relationship. Living in that relationship is established with us by His grace. And so we shouldn't expect blessing where we live independently of relationship with the Lord as our King. That is true for believers in Jesus. I mean, why should we expect peace and joy, assurance and forgiveness and love, the blessings of relationship with the Lord Jesus? where we are not living in that relationship, not living with Jesus as our Lord, letting him direct our lives. But is there some behaviour or attitude that New Testament singles out that could be representative of our obedience in the new covenant, of our obedience, of our living in the relationship that the Lord has established with us graciously through his death? Is there some behaviour in the New Testament that would allow us to audit the reality of our relationship with the Lord, a behaviour that would be like giving the tithe to the poor. Well, yes, there is actually, and it's love of our fellow believers. Like the third-year tithe, this love is both costly and expresses a commitment to be like our God the God who has brought us into relationship with himself. You see, our Lord Jesus highlights loving our brothers and sisters as he has loved us as the sign that we're his disciples, as the sign that we are living in relationship with him as his people, those who have been made his own by his grace. And it's this love that the epistles take up over and over again. Uh, They're looking for a genuine love in the lives of the Lord's people for the Lord's people. I've put references in the handout, but it's, it's a love which has to be not just in words, but in deed and truth, says John. It's a love that conforms itself, says James, to the royal law that shares its resources with those in need. And in this life, the need of our brothers and sisters, yes, can be material want, but also help, when exhausted by caring for others, the young or the sick or the very old, comfort in grief, company in loneliness, encouragement when discouraged. Love can show itself in many ways. Now, if you're middle class like me, and I am solidly, okay, people like me actually have to remember that love is more than politeness. Right, It's actually opening yourself to care, to actually genuinely care for others. It's giving of yourselves to help as you can. Oh, and equally so, love doesn't presume or manipulate the love of others. But love actually has to be real. Now, what would the confession of someone who had responded to the grace of Jesus look like? If they were running the love ordered over their lives. Well, it might look like this. Consider this for yourself. You come and say before the Lord who sees your heart, I have loved your people as you commanded. I have been patient and kind. I've given my time to comfort and help them. I have disciplined my prayers to seek their good from you. I have opened my home to them when they've left their families, say, across the waters or they've been in need. I have shared the resources you have given me with them and I have encouraged them to keep on trusting you when they've been tested. Could you make that confession, the confession of the reality of your relationship with the Lord Jesus? And what kind of prayer might follow? Something like this. Continue to show us your love and kindness in Christ according to your good promises. Let us all know more and more of your love for us so that we can be sustained in loving, in doing the good that brings you honour. Well, having given the people ways of preserving the health of their relationship with the Lord in rituals that allow them to confess grace, And having given them their response to grace, Moses now finishes this great second speech by reminding them of the purpose of the grace they had received, the grace they were were to continue to live in. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall be careful, therefore, to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. This day, verse 16, returns the people from thinking about the life that will be theirs in the land to the present, to listening to Moses on the plains of Moab. And the repeated reference to these statutes and rules takes them back to the beginning of the speech in chapter 5 and in particular to the beginning of the second part of the speech in chapter 12 where Moses started teaching them these statutes and rules that they're to live by in the land. So this is Moses' conclusion to the whole speech. And in this conclusion, he summarises the heart of their covenant relationship with the Lord in two phrases. Firstly, verse 17, The Lord is their God. And then verse 18, They are his people. The Lord will be their God, verse 17. And so they're to be loyal to him, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, obeying his voice. And they will be his people, his treasured possession, echoing what he'd said to them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. People he values and keeps for himself, a holy people separated to him from all the nations his very own. Now this summary of the relationship between the Lord and Israel I will be their God, they will be my people. Uh, This summary of the relationship the Lord has brought about by his grace in rescuing them from Egypt reminds us that this relationship is the fulfilment of God's intention to have a people for his own, a purpose he intends to realise through fulfilling the promises he'd made way back hundreds of years before to Abraham, where he said, I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Promises he repeats throughout the life of Abraham, say verse 17, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He promised that Abraham would be a great nation, He promised that he would be the God of Abraham's descendants. Oh, yes, and that in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, these promises tell us that God's purpose of grace was not exhausted with the salvation of Israel or bringing them into the Promised Land. The purpose of his grace to Israel making them his people is that through being his people, listening to him and doing what he says blessing would come to all nations. And the Lord says here, Deuteronomy 26 verse 19, that though through Israel through Israel being his people, exalting them by his choice and entering into relationship with them, praise, fame and honour would come. (coughs) Now the ESV and the NIV both suggest that what is in mind is is Israel's fame but the RV marginal reading and more literal translation is better. He will set you high above all nations that he has made for praise, fame and honour, that you shall be a people holy to the Lord. It's actually the Lord's fame and honour that's in view. By being his faithful covenant partner, living by his word, Praise, fame and honour will come to the Lord as the nations saw how good it is to have the Lord, the true and only God, as their God. You see, the purpose of God's grace is to have a people of his own in fulfilment of his promise to Abraham. A people who by being faithful to him would bring blessing to the nations as he promised and bring honour to the Lord through his saving them. But as we know, Israel failed in that purpose. Rather than being distinct from the nations by trusting and obeying the Lord, they disobeyed and became like the nations. Rather than worship the Lord, they went and worshipped other gods. Rather than bring honour to the Lord's name, as Ezekiel says, they dishonoured the Lord. They caused his name to be profaned among the nations. But praise our God, human sin cannot frustrate God's gracious purpose the Lord was determined to keep his promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation and in his offspring all the nations would be blessed the Lord was determined to have a holy people of his own and so he sent his son Jesus God with us son of Abraham By God's great grace, seen in rescuing believers from sin and death through the death of Jesus and bringing the gospel to us and opening our blind eyes to see Jesus' glory in the gospel, moving our dead hearts to a living faith, believers in Jesus are now God's chosen people, the people of his very own, the people in and through whom God's gracious purpose is realised. That's you and I, as we trust Jesus. Now, that last phrase about God realising his purpose may sound dense and abstract, but if you take time to think about it, you will see that it's actually wonderful. It's saying that despite human sin and disobedience, the Lord has triumphed. Abraham has descendants more than can be numbered. And through Christ, blessing has come to all nations. And that tells you that the word of God I believe in, the word of God you believe in, is a word that will never be broken, a word that's been proven true. Oh, it tells you that the sin I struggle with, the sin you struggle with, won't stop God from keeping his word to me and you. And the purpose of his grace remains that his people should bring blessing to all and glory and honour to his name. Listen to Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Or listen to the Apostle Peter. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Or verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And as you heard in Ephesians, believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, the good works that bring him praise and honour. And where to bring blessing to the nations? by bringing them to know the one in whom all the nations of the earth are blessed, by sharing with them God's saving grace, his mercy in preaching the gospel that the crucified Jesus is Lord. So, brothers and sisters, his grace to us has a purpose. Well, there's a lot in this chapter, especially in those last few verses. A chapter all about the grace of God. Heed it and stay healthy in your relationship with the living God, the relationship he gave his son to bring you into so that you can call him father. Promote joy and thankfulness and avoid damaging self-righteousness and thankless forgetfulness by confessing his grace to you often, recounting often what the Lord has done for his people in Christ What he has done for you. And you might like to write your own confession of grace. That would be good for you. And avoid destructive presumption that pretends to have a relationship with the Lord but lacks its substance. Audit the reality of your relationship by checking if you're responding to God's grace in the way he commands by listening to him and doing his will, especially, believer in Jesus, by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember the purpose of his grace to you. It doesn't end with you. It's given to transform you so that you are light and salt in the world, a people who do the good that brings honour to our glorious, gracious, heavenly Father through his Saviour Jesus. It's given to you so that as you witness to the grace you have come to know by believing in Jesus, all the nations can be blessed in Abraham's offspring in Jesus. People from every nation might come to find a place around the throne of God, come to find that place through believing the good news you and I have believed, the news of salvation, By faith in the crucified Jesus, through faith in the crucified Jesus by his grace, the news of Jesus dying for our sin and rising again. Confessing grace, responding to grace by living in the relationship which grace establishes. Give yourself to that purpose. Do good and speak of Jesus to the praise, fame and honour of the Lord our God, Father, Son and Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We are undeserving. And even now, when we say as believers in Jesus that we have been loved with an everlasting love, We know how far we fall short in loving others. We thank you for the mercy that you renew to us every day. We thank you for the assurance that in the death of Jesus you have covered over all our sins. We thank you that through trusting him, we are your children, can call you Father. We thank you for your mercy and grace to us. And we pray... That you would make us always mindful, never forgetful of this glorious kindness you have shown us. And we pray that you would so move in our hearts by your spirit that we live in and know the joy of living in relationship with you as our Father. And gracious Father, we pray all this so that your good purpose would be fulfilled in the world. We would be a people rich in doing good and we would speak of your Son so that others come to praise you and give you thanks, our gracious God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.